Welcome, old listener, to another episode of Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug. This is episode 126 of the podcast, and we have another interesting conversation lined up for you. One which I'm entirely not party to. I gather that they start with Shroud of the Avatar and they end with, I think, the Pool of Radiance games and also some of um, some other games from, you know, like sort of the early era of CRPGs. But what gets discussed in the middle, I have next to no idea about. So you're pretty much on your own going into this one. Good luck. Uh, just a reminder, of course, we are now hosted on Anchor.fm, a new and much more social podcast hosting platform. You can find us at Anchor.fm slash SSSH podcast or at spam, 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 humbug.com. And if you are listening to us on Anchor, please do take advantage of some of the features of that community. You can leave us voice messages up to a minute in duration. You can give our episodes applause. You can like individual episodes or the entirety of the podcast within the Anchor app, which is available for iOS and Android. And for those of you who do the smart home thing, another thing that Anchor brings to us is integration with Apple HomePod and Google Home. So you can try saying, hey Siri, or hey Google, play the podcast Spam, 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 Humbug, and see what happens. And as always, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by our Patreon backers. Thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and the Codex by that means. And in particular, a hearty thank you to our co-producers, Seth, Golden Flame, Chris, Brickbat, Dominic, Violation, Cranberry, Christopher, Bruce, Darkwraith, Dragon, Helgriff, Gronk, Pascal, and Thorwan. Now, on with the show. And again, good luck. I know not what transpires herein. Anyway, back to the whole, uh, you know, not knowing where to sit on soda, got really excited when, you know, heard the first announcements about it or whatever they were. And, uh, yeah, wasn't sure if I really wanted to sign up for another online thing, but promised the uh, single player thing. So I figured what the heck and went ahead and purchased it or whatever you called it, bought my membership or whatever. Yeah, I backed it on Richard Garriott's name alone, so I know what you mean. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, tr- yeah, tried it out, and I don't know, just kind of seemed like a uh, improved graphic RuneScape. I have to say that was a lot of my feeling when I first started playing it back in release like 13 when Owl's Head and that part of the te- of that part of the world was the only thing in because it was just a, a chunk to get people in. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that a lot of the texture work and a lot of the models felt like they must have been stock. And I, at the, even then, at that time, with the way the systems were, I thought that it had great potential. But due to other obligations, I couldn't really play it at that time because... It didn't feel like it was in a state to be, you know, played as a main thing. You know, it's your main game that you're spending hours of your life in daily. All right. So I came back in about release 35-ish, 30, or 34, 35, when they had the whole uh, love story in. You know, it was rough and it wasn't really polished, but it was in. And granted, I did in that what I used to do in uh, most of my day in EverQuest was I would be spending most of it grinding on monsters 
going back, scrapping the weapons I found into metal and working on blacksmithing. I, I mean, I spent hours in this one little dinky newbie area right by the starting town, just killing massive amounts of skeletons and bandits and zombies, oh my, and banging on <laughs> copper and iron rocks. And I had fun, even if I was doing repetitive stuff, because I was seeing a, you know, I was seeing a gradual sequential increase in character ability, and I was seeing people out and around in game doing stuff. I mean, actually sat down for about thirty minutes to an hour in Soul Town, watching, uh, watching a group of people at the end having a jam session on the piano, and I thought it was amazing hearing somebody actually playing Stones. Mm-hmm. But. I mean, I knew the game was easily unfinished because there were a lot of game breaker bugs. I mean, I couldn't go into major cities without without the skybox and my or just completely freaking out. And if I played it for over an hour, it would just bog down really badly. And at the time, or for the time, my system was a high performance machine. I mean, it's bog standard to low end at this point, but still. Yeah, I definitely ran into that uh, memory leak or whatever it was. And I even had a chance to PvP because this one guild, EVL, was having a PvP tournament where groups could get together and have a chance to challenge Star or Lord British uh, to combat. I mean, I even called out Richard on, on Twitter saying, I'm going to deck you in the schnoz. <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to target players, so it didn't happen. And I got my ass royally kicked. <laughs> And at that time, I thought it was good. It was unfinished, but there was potential. You know, the hope was high. Then, ever since then, it seems like it's been a steady case of seeing all sorts of advertisements about, hey, this is new in the cash shop. Or, oh, by the way, you can't repair uh, max durability anymore unless you get something from the cash shop. And here's some bug fixes and some more stuff in the cash shop. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of push on the uh, pay-to-play part. <laughs> Which is sad, because I would have swore I remember some of the early conversations and interviews, and Richard saying that the game would never be pay-to-win. Yeah, I remember something of that as well. I can understand the need to make money to keep the game afloat, but there's other things I've been seeing that have just broken my heart. I mean, so many people who up until recently haven't been getting their Kickstarter backer rewards honored as far as boxed copies that are finally starting to get them after like five years. And when the and when uh, Portalarium did the uh, article dem- saying that they were doing this and here was proof by showing the boxes, they were in stacks on what looked like somebody's uh, living room floor. <laughs> Yeah, that actually reminds me. I backed a whole bunch of stuff on Kickstarter, and I don't think I've ever gotten anything. And I've seen from a lot of people a lot of repressed frustration and anger over how things went with Soda. Not so much me, because I got I got a couple hundred hours of play out of it, and for a $55 backing, that's, you know, that's 200 hours of play is a good deal. But 
I went to go play it recently because I do streaming, and it's not the same game it was in early 60-something. They implemented giving you bonus experience every single day and bonus gold every single day just for logging in and talking to the Oracle. And they also made a hard cap on how much, or a soft cap on how much experience you can make daily, which really just, in my opinion, killed it for the people who play for hours on end, like, you know, me. Right. Uh, wasn't sure about that whole, uh, oh, here's your you know, 100k XP for logging in and talking to the Oracle. Make sure you run over and talk to the Oracle. Log yeah. in again tomorrow and talk to the Oracle. The whole Oracle thing was back when I was playing in the release 30s. was about tracking your virtues and you only needed to do it once a week back then. Yeah, I think I was kind of hoping for more of the you know, the whole Ultima 4 becoming an avatar type thing since they were saying, you know, going back to the virtues, so. You're not the only one. I mean, I remember how shiny and fancy everything looked at the beginning when we were talking, when they were talking about this dream team of Star and, and Richard and Chris Spears and and having Tracy Hickman doing story and writing novels, you know, and having music brought in by David Watson. Mm-hmm. And I remember the initial Kickstarter videos and, like, say, the Spoonie interview. I mean, Spoonie's a very controversial figure if you talk on the, on the forums or on the Discord. And seeing everything, and it looked like it was all shiny and new, you know, new equipment that looked like it was damn near just barely had the shrink wrap taken off. You know, a very well put together office looking like they could get some real work done. But now they're talking about, you know, not having an office anymore. And I forgot exactly. They use some weasel speak about uh, roaming offices or, you know, being or uh, non-central or some crap like that. I don't know. I think ju just their whole uh, concept of their financial structure wasn't ever really viable. But I did do... Or I tried to separate my feelings about uh, Ultima and Origin that I remember from my childhood and my young adulthood from Soda because... Oh, it might have been the same people. It was 20 years separate between the games being made. Uh, I think if they had uh, stepped back on trying to promise all the 3D immersive world and gone more with a you know, basic interface and concentrated more on the story, it would have grabbed me more. All right. Of course, like I said, I'm still active on the mud, and that has no graphics. <laughs> well, sometimes I find it easier to enjoy a game that doesn't have graphics, so you have to use your own imagination, or that has very primitive graphics. It's like, when I did a recent playthrough on my stream of Ultima 1, 2, and 3, I put it up forth as essentially, what if the Avatar was Florida Man? So in Ultima 1, I, anytime I went into... Lord British is. That, well, I didn't need my eardrums. That's good. Uh, sorry if that was me. <laughs> you know, 
anytime I went into a castle, I would go murder the jester. You know, deep seated uh, cholerophobia as well as disdain for playing the game with chuckles in U seven. You know, in U in Ultima two, I was constantly going in rather than actually buying food like a sane person, going in and stealing all my food from the takeout window at the McDonald's in Port Boniface, while having a bow and no clothing equipped. So it's this naked screaming guy running through the McDonald's drive-thru saying, put all the Big Macs in a bag! Uh, I don't know. I think uh, Chuckles always had a special place in my heart because he did the uh, Atari port. I heard that he did the Atari, uh, did the ports for, I think it was U2 and U3? I believe so. Huh. I'd actually have to find my old boxes and look now. Uh, my experiences with U2, 1, 2, and 3 were the old, old DOS PC versions thanks to Ultima Collection and GOG. I, I, had to, I had to go find graphical update patches because two-color CGA was just so painful. Well, they actually look pretty good on composite. Right, but there's no such thing as a composite 42-inch LCD screen. <laughs> and that would take a little bit of a wiring. That was actually something one of the other dragons was working on quite a while ago. I, I swear I remember seeing once a patch for U2 and U3 that were a compo you know, a patch to uh, change the graphics to as close to what the composite were as you could do on RGB. And of course, I did what pretty much everybody did in U3 and got all my experience in gold in Fawn. <laughs> ah, the best thing to do was to get those time gems and then uh, go play with the guards. Uh, that's <laughs> actually why I went to Fawn, because of, every, of any town in the game, Fawn was the only one where guards did not spawn when you started getting murdery. Or it wasn't time gems, it was time powder, right? Uh, and two, I don't remember. It was, it was, I think, coins to negate time in two. Man, it has been way too long since I've played this. I did do a run through a four not too long ago. Uh, did you do the usual uh, cheese for sacrifice by giving all your blood and then going to, uh, going to LB to get a heal and lather, rinse, repeat? Oh, usually in between, I'd run right next door and uh, throw some gold at a beggar, too. <laughs> it's sad when a game is trying to teach you to not be a dick, but you break the game by doing exactly what it doesn't want you to do, just in the right way. It's like any other system, you learn how to game it. Right. That's why I stopped playing... Most of the RTSs back in the 90s was the rule sets were too simple. Of course, that gave me cockiness. And then, you know, when the new generation of RTSs came out, I was like, oh, well, they're just RTSs. I can go play them and win. <laughs> I was wrong, of course, but I thought I could. Well, that's one thing I liked about the new StarCraft and Warcraft 3 was they gave you a lot of ways to automate a lot of things. 
I mean, yeah, you could do all the batching and stuff it, that you could, or you could do that in StarCraft and I think Warcraft 2, but StarCraft 2 made it to where you could easily just do it with the click of a button rather than various key, uh, key combinations. Yeah, StarCraft 2 was the one that blew up your uh, video card originally, correct? Um, I don't know if it was my video card, but... Well, I mean, just in general, it was a known problem. I think it might have, but I wasn't an early adopter of StarCraft II. I, I got it about a few months after the fact. What I do remember of following coverage of it is when I first learned of Total Biscuit being a thing. Total Biscuit. I don't know what you're referring to. A British gaming personality recently passed away about a year ago, but was very big on YouTube and amongst the StarCraft II community in particular as a commentator and reviewer of various video games. Ah. Uh, if I asked my son about that, he could probably tell me all about it. His mother still asked me why he watches video game videos. He plays a game, so does he watch videos? Like, I'm sure they're showing him how to do something. <laughs> well, that is a very that is a very smart thing exactly that uh when i was or when i've been playing a share of mmos during my time like like most of us really uh one thing that was common and if if nay expected whenever you were preparing for a dungeon you hadn't done before was most guilds expected you to take the time go watch the video for whatever or go watch videos to tell you about the various boss mechanics and such before ever setting foot in it. In fact, in early WoW, say classic, if you went into a dungeon not knowing the mechanics or you went to a raid not knowing the mechanics, people would actually boot you or report you for trolling. Hello there. Hello. Hello? Oh, Drax. Hi, Drax. How are you doing? Doing good. I'm officially back into sprite design. After 15 years of not doing anything considerable in that, in that regard. Oh, pixel art. I like pixel art. Yeah, I posted a screenshot. I'm developing my own style and. Uh, that's a test character. I'll be creating a few of them to make sure the, the style is consistent or if there's anything that I need to modify or change. Well, one thing with art is that one of my friends who does semi-professional 3D modeling had told me, because I'm a vocalist, I don't really have much way to speak mm -hmm. on uh, creating art rather than mimicking other people's art, you know. Mm -hmm. Songbird, not a composer. Anyhow, mm -hmm. is what I was always told was find your own style. Find what works for you. You know, don't try to copy somebody else, no matter how much you idolize them. Find what, make, find what works mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I took the all uh, the sprite design I use uh, 
Well, I, normally I would work with a style which was uh, pretty close to the Final Fantasy VI, right? Um, well, it's quite small, so I decided to... Well, the sprite size for Final Fantasy VI is 16 by 24. Right. So I decided to go 16 by 32, and then I went up to 16. To 32 by 64, and since the the style is uh, much larger, I had to develop my own, and that's what I posted. Huh. Uh, I really haven't seen any. I haven't used any reference or any any kind of sprites of that size. I went completely by myself, on my own. Oh. It's absolutely better than what I could do, that's for sure. Yeah. I've been practicing. Uh, I practiced, uh, say, well, I started on pixel art about 30 years ago. And uh, I, at some point, I stopped doing sprite art about 15 years ago. So I, so it's, uh, 15 years of experience plus 15 years of inactivity. <laughs> and now I'm back. Are you planning on using or doing this for a game, or is this just something to make for your own avatar? It's for my games. Okay. Yeah, I'm still making adjustments to the style, but it's a starting point. As I said, I'm going to create several characters with this style to put it to the, uh, to a on a stress test and then see how it goes, um, make some adjustments until, until it looks the way I want it. Okay. It's a sort of a anime-ish style. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm a bit of a weeaboo myself. Yeah, I'm still playing with the proportions and with the roundness of the of the face. All right. I'll tell you what that I'll tell you what that character reminds me of is I I used to play a lot of role-playing games back in the 16-bit days. And there was one series that was one of my favorites, mostly because I could get access to them and not really get access to the Final Fantasies. And this was a game called Fantasy Star. Well, Fantasy Star 3 in specific. Mm -hmm. And there was a character called Miu. Or Miu. She mm -hmm. was a combat cyborg with red hair and clothing similar to that. And she was simultaneously one of the most powerful offensive characters in the group while also being your very first healer. Oh. Let me actually find a picture of Mew. Give you an example. Well, before this design, I was trying uh, a full high definition, thinking of a game made in full high definition, so I worked with the, uh, designing a sprite uh, appropriate for that resolution, but uh, in the end, I found it was too much work. 
So I dumped that style and decided to want a little more retro and develop my own style. But this is the actual character in the high-definition style I came up with before drawing the boots. Now that looks like something out of Mabinogi. Out of what? Uh, an old Korean free-to-play MMO that I used to play a lot. It was called Mabinogi. It was originally based on Celtic myth with a lot of liberties taken, but mm -hmm. over time it's changed. But it had a very three, you know, the character models were 3D and slightly super deformed, mm -hmm. but had faces quite and body frames quite similar to that. Mm -hmm. Note that I'm saying that it's a good thing because I was a huge fan of that game. I put hundreds of hours into Mabinogi, and then they went and started giving new players. Because the game mm -hmm. had a re uh, had a rebirth system that once at the, when I played it was once every three weeks, though so it's like once every couple of days now you could rebirth your character, set them back to level one, but you kept all of these skills and abilities that you had. But the reason for rebirthing was whenever you needed went, went to level up a skill, you needed so many a or AP or ability points. And you got them one per level as you leveled up. So one life would not remotely be enough AP to get even a fraction of what you would, you know, of the skills that you would want. So it was very common to rebirth whenever you could to maximize your AP, your AP, your AP points, mm -hmm. so you could uh, raise your skills once you trained them up properly. Yeah, there was a lot of grinding to be done, and I had over 500 yeah. combined levels over so many rebirths. And I was proud of it because it took me months, if not a year, of busting my rump to get that many. And I have mm -hmm. fr a friend of mine who's got almost 2,000 levels total that she's made. Now, the part that gets me is new players are given a 500 AP potion, you know, 500 levels worth of AP just for creating an account these days. Yeah. I mean, while they didn't do yeah. the grinding, skill grinding that I did, and I really can't complain too much because if I would have started now, I would have gotten all of that now. But mm. it really is a sock in the gut because it feels like all that work that I did so uh, somebody else can do simply from the act of logging in now. Mm. Also, uh, welcome back, Jelly Bear. Oh, you're not really back, back. You're with the dogs. Uh. <laughs> so, from a non artist perspective, have you tried doing the uh, your sprites in like just black and white to get the shapes down before you color them? Or actually, let me show you the. Uh, how should I call it? The testing, testing board. Okay. I might need to drop out one moment. That's a Guys, base character. I copy, paste it to the to a new file. Uh, actually, it has layers. It has several layers. It works pretty much like Photoshop and other modern 
graphics editing program and I recolor them and I draw over them other extra details and stuff. You definitely have a lot more talent than I ever did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that those uh, all, all of those designs that you see, I did all, I did that in uh, in one afternoon. The face designs, they were there were several iterations until I got one that I like. And then from that, I created the male face and the male character, which is on the right, and I have not tested it yet. I'm working on the female one first. I really like the way the eyes are done. Mm. It took some time. Actually, that's, uh, that design is... Uh, if you look at the character, uh, the completed character I posted, the eyes are a little different. That's because I changed the expression on the face expression. I have a base character, but start, uh, it's just a starting point. And from there, I make small modifications to adapt to the character's mood or the personality or something else. I think all of my uh, figures would just look like stick figures. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for several years. <laughs> so I already know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, all my work was done with a pencil and pen. So. Oh. Let me see. I have some, some images over here. As far as like doing anything on the computer, as far as art is concerned, we had a koala pet, you know, back in the eight-bit computer days, and I could not do anything on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then when the mouse became popular with the release of the Macintosh, my father had taken me up to a computer store to test out the new Macintosh in 1984. And I tried using it, and afterwards I said, yeah, I don't see why anybody would ever want to touch one of these things. Mm. This one I made cow. 20 years ago. That is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> and I did tons of those back then. <laughs> now I'm working at twice the resolution, and so far it's been... It's uh, it's been manageable. It's been too hard. Those animations must have looked fantastic. Yeah. Actually, actually, that one is not so smooth. I have another which is uh, it's much smoother. It's the same number. Actually, let's see. It's eight frames per direction. The animation, actually, yeah, that's uh, that one is eight frames, mm -hmm. but it's one of the first tests uh, we made for that, and the animation is smooth, but it it's not so realistic. There are repeated frames, but for later ones, I actually drew them with a uh, well, I had a model, and, uh, and I checked the way she was walking and. And I I drew all of that with uh, well the 
key details I drew them with pencil and then I created the whole animation and that's something that uh, I keep in my memory uh, it's something I I studied a lot and I learned it so uh, I'll see if I still remember that when I'm animating the, the character I just have a total disconnect trying to translate anything to digital. Mm. But Actually, mm -hmm, yeah. I never spent the time trying to do it because I was never comfortable working in digital medium. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. well, I'm trying to work on well, this style is loosely based on on the art of someone I'm working with an artist he's doing some illustrations for me and i tried to to mimic the style a little since those illustrations will be for the game well you definitely have a lot more focus than uh most people i know <laughs> yeah. i think so I'm a manager of my work, and trying to get anybody to stay on task with anything seems to be impossible. Mm. <laughs> you definitely put your time in here. Actually, I was I, I was planning to join from the start, but uh, time just flew by, and then when I finished, I checked the time, <laughs> so it was already late. <laughs> Well, I was referring to the time you've spent working on your art. You've definitely put in the time to learn how to do it well. Yeah. I studied a, a bit of anatomy and studied several several sprite styles. And I think the best my digital art ever got was uh, replicating the uh, altered character sets that were used in the Ultimus. <laughs> Actually, at some point, I thought of uh, of uh, creating a sprite set, a very large sprite set and tile set for for XU4, since it allowed custom tiles. <laughs> yeah, all of mine was just the entering in the binary patterns and. Mm. Yeah, just working on or off, not trying to do any colors or anything. Mm -hmm. More like the uh, yeah, first three Ultimas. <laughs> so there's a lot of assembly on those. Well, that was easy for me. I taught myself that when I was little. <laughs> that was the only way to get good copies of games when you didn't want to buy them. <laughs> that was the way to get uh, fast code otherwise oh. it was too slow I actually learned how to program from trying to reverse engineer copy protection on games first so mm. I was dumping out sectors and then trying to figure out what the actual byte codes meant <laughs> and worked my way Backwards to assembly that way. 
So then when I started programming and started looking at other programs that were out there and seeing stuff that was programmed in like basic and seeing how incredibly inefficient it was, I <laughs> never even tried to program in it. I can imagine. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, a new game would come out and they'd want to pass code, you know, for you to move on to the next part. And I could just scan through the code and go, oh, look, there's a jump not equal. So I can just change that to a jump equal or just a straight jump and no copy protection. Mm. <laughs> I just remember the story of the story of Mel, the programmer. Have you read it? No. It's quite an interesting story. It's uh, some uh, some time ago. If you if you googled for. Uh, when programmers were real men, it would turn out on the, fir the first, it would be the first to turn out. And it's a, it's a post someone published on, I think it was on Usenet, talking about how people discusses about what, what real programmers do and how real programmers program in Fortran. Or that they program in C. Uh, there was a. Oh, I have read this. A lot, yeah, a lot of debate on that matter. And then this guy comes in and jumps into the conversation and talks about a programmer whose name was Mel and he programmed in machine language. This was actually one of my inspirations when I was a. Uh when I lost faith in myself in programming, I read this and went back to it because I wanted to do what he did. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what has become of him. <laughs> I don't know, but he made me really happy with what I was doing and made me try harder. <laughs> the whole part about uh, doing that loop that was timed exactly with the turning of the drum that they used for storage was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mind-blowing. There was actually some trick similar to that that they used as copy protection on some of the old 8-bit computers. Uh, there was an expansion board for the 1050 floppy drive for the Atari made it a fast to drive and if you actually had that enabled there were some games that wouldn't run because the timings would be off on reading the sectors mm -hmm. and so i think it was a pirated disc mm -hmm. that was a fun thing to try to figure out <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. i spent way too much time on the wrong bbs's when i was a kid <laughs> There are lots of things that are being lost. Uh, I was, uh, well, I've been into game programming for, for quite some time. And when XNA Game Studio came out, I joined the community and uh, looked at the tutorials and everything that was being published. And there was a, a, a tiles, a, a tile maps tutorial. Mm -hmm. I I read it and it was complete crap. 
because the person who created the tutorial had absolutely no idea of what uh, of what the tile maps are actually about. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he got what it was. Uh, he got it that the tile map is that you have a an array of tiles and that you create a map by setting up a, on the indexes of the tiles on the files which is what represents the scenario he mm -hmm. got all of that right but he uh well my the way i see it he was probably a, a child or someone completely new to computers and programming he he didn't live when tile engines were a thing were uh, the good the the best thing i mean he he didn't get what they're actually for they are for saving memory right they are he did to be very very efficient and he was he's uh his tile based scenarios were made on an xml file and, <laughs> it was, and the indexes of the tiles were plain text separated <laughs> by commas Oh, that's hilarious. I, I saw it and I thought, what? what is this crap? I, I was expecting a binary file, a raw binary file at least, where, I would, <laughs> where each byte would represent an index on the tiles table. Uh, that's what I was expecting. And I, what I find is an XML file with the, in, with the scenario defined by indexes uh, in plain text separated by commas <laughs> and and I read the explanation he made about tiles oh the tiles were 64 by 64 pixels <laughs> and by looking at them there were there were a lot of sections of the tiles which were repeated <laughs> for example there was one tile and then the next tile was uh, at least 75% equal. <laughs> and I thought, why, then why create a, such a big tile if you're wasting so much on repeated data? Because he never had to work in the constraints of a system that had less than 100K. Yeah, and, and that, uh, that was a tutorial for XNA Game Studio. Which is made for developing games for console. It, it's, it works for developing Windows games, but it's the but what's being marketed as was for as a as a as a way to develop games for Xbox. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's supposed to be efficient in terms of memory usage. And this guy is giving us a tutorial, which is a complete waste—a complete waste of resources. Yeah, the right way to learn how to use tile sets for your interface is to reverse engineer, you know, one of the early games that actually used them. Yeah. yeah actually, I have some friends who developed their own game engines, and the way they made the the uh, the way they made the tile scenarios 
it was a little uh well it was json files but the actual uh, the actual data it was you uh, you encoded or it was compressed into it was a for example a json file uh, and then there was a an entry a key mm-hmm. and opened some curly braces for the data and all of the data was a, a stream of characters which were compressed with lzw and and you, and then the engine would uncompress that string and and get the actual scenario the actual map <laughs> And my first big game that I wrote was uh, basically kind of like an Ultima 4 lookalike. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used an overlay to mm-hmm. load up each new section of map in so I could fit my entire game in 32K of memory. Although written mm-hmm. out on disk, it was actually almost a meg mm-hmm. because of the size of the world I did. But the disk flop swapping on that was horrible. <laughs> Because you needed ten discs to play the game, mm. <coughs> but you know that was like 1985. So <laughs> 1985 it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the first big game I wrote. I wish I still had it. I could probably redraw the map from memory now. I spent about a year working on that thing. Uh, the biggest game I made was a uh, Final Fantasy One remake. I never finished it, but spent quite some time on it. Mm, created characters on uh, um, Final Fantasy Six style. Mm-hmm. And I, for the maps, I actually made them made them. Uh, I tripled the dimensions of the original Final Fantasy One map, so the towns and everything was huge. The world for the world map, I was using the same original size, but for towns, cities, and, and dungeons and everything, it was triple the dimensions. So what was originally one time, uh, what was originally one tile. It was now nine tiles. That's a pretty big expansion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of work. That's the reason I never finished it. Uh, my favorite part about the game I wrote was my combat system. Because every piece of armor had a protective value for where you wore it. and had. Mm-hmm. Like a slash versus bludgeoning damage reduction. And then, of course, you had to have slash versus bludgeoning damage on every type of weapon and attack. So that was the most complicated part of the game, was just making my whole combat system. But I had so much fun with it. I probably spent six months just on that. For the Final Fantasy Remake, I stored all the weapon and armor data in binary files and I would uh, I would load them into memory uh, I kept all of mine with a 8-bit you know bludgeoning versus 
slashing, so you know each damage range should go up to fifteen. You know, slashing would be high bit and or high nibble, and bludgeoning would be low nibble. And then where you actually struck on the person was randomly determined. And then you had to cross-reference the player table of where their armor was and which armor it was to get your damage reduction. Yeah. It was just a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it works right on computers, but forget <laughs> it on tabletop. <laughs> oh, that would have been horrible. Nobody would have wanted to do that. <laughs> I don't know what my dog's barking at, but he's loud. <laughs> Calm down. I remember going around and showing everybody my notebooks with my combat system all written out in it. It's too complicated. Why don't you just do like the D&D &D thing and have like a two hit and then a damage range? Like, that's no fun. Want to do something more realistic or more akin to what you were trying to accomplish. But I wanted something that it wasn't just, oh, I can knock you down to one hit point and you're still alive and you're okay. I had, you know, critical hits. You could literally disarm someone. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they wouldn't just, you know, walk away from that. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought it was silly that you could, you know, basically get a fighter character and then get him beat almost to death and just heal him up and, you know, he does it again and again and then he just keeps on getting stronger and can get hit more and more. And that's not how the, anybody works. You get hurt mm -hmm. really bad and you're out of commission for a while. You get hurt worse and yeah. you're never fighting again. Yeah. Probably had to do with a little bit with the kind of people I played D&D &D with, too. Because <laughs> our main dungeon master didn't like the idea of that either. So sometimes you'd get career ending injuries and then you'd have to create a new character. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of a very old game, Knights of Legion. Did you ever play it? Uh, it doesn't sound familiar. Let me look it up real quick. Yeah, it was published by Origin. And they plan to develop several expansions, but they never did. They never published any expansion. But the thing with that game is that well, it the combats took a lot of time, especially in dungeon combat, because uh, you had first you had to choose uh, your action. If you were going to walk, you had to choose between three different speeds. If you walk, or if you hustle, or if you uh, run, or if you just walk faster, but not running. And then if you attack, you had to choose if you want to attack to the head, or to the chest, or to the legs. And... <laughs> There were lots of details, and and when you were choosing your actions, there were some characters who had a, a stat called Foresight. If your character has very high Foresight, it allowed you to predict the enemy's attack or the enemy's defense. So you would know if, uh, 
if the enemy was going to 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 defend from a high attack or from or also you could also choose you choose the strength of your attack and that would make it faster or slower and there were the combat had too many choices and too many variables and and sometimes the foresight would uh, make you change your mind or change your strategy and, and it really took a lot of time especially because the party was made of six characters I think that sounds like what I was trying to go with with the game I did. I'm disappointed I never played it. <laughs> well, you can, if you look for it, you, might find, you may find it. I don't know if it's on GOG. Yeah, I'm looking right now. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very old school. Only we old school people can enjoy such a game. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely one of those. <laughs> oh, popped up here. Yeah. Oh. Pasting the screenshot. This was my party. Ah, oh, see, that's not that old school. It has graphics. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's actually the that's a, a party picture. It's for when you want to look at your party, and it shows you graphics. But the combat is uh, made with very simple icons, pretty much like uh, on the style. Well, it's not exactly the style of Ultima Four, but the well, icons are of, uh, about that size. I like that artwork. What game is that from? Knights of Legion, published by Origin. Oh, I don't think I've actually had the chance to play that one. Yeah, the combat system is quite complicated. <laughs> and also, if you want to play as, as one of the winged characters, I suggest you choose uh, the lightest armor if you want to. to oh, wow, that play came out late. Flying. 1989. Oh, my. And it's not on God. No. Hey, and it was on the Commodore too. It's a lot. Sorry, I think. That's very fascinating to see. Because the <laughs> color scheming and models sort of remind me. I'm not sure why, but Sega. First, that could just be because my brain was expecting to see Sega. <laughs> And in regards to the sprite, the test sprite I created, this is the same character drawn by pencil. And I did some redesign on the clouds. Yeah, I remember I spent hours playing Knights of Legion. The combats took very long time. The dungeons, they were very slow to play. Since I had to, for exploring a dungeon, it was the same as combat. It was turn-based, and 
you had to control every character Very one fast. by one. So in turn turn based turn based dungeon exploration. <laughs> character by character, one at a time. Well, I know what I'm doing if I get any downtime at work this week. <laughs> okay, we have Schrodinger's Dragon here, but not here. I have too many Discord channels. Mm. Oh, believe me, I know that feeling. Mm. Oh, I kind of want to install it and load it up, but I don't know if the sound will play over Discord. Mm. I've had an I've had issues with sound playing over Discord that I didn't want to play over Discord. If you want to participate more directly in the podcast, you can send us an email at ultimacodex at gmail.com, or if you're feeling a bit braver, you can leave us a voice message in one of three places, the podcast website, our Facebook page, or on anchor.fm. You're also welcome to join us on Discord to chat with us and to lurk or contribute to podcast recordings when they happen. If you want to join the Ultima Dragons, you can do so at udic.org, where at you can choose your very own dragon name. You can also find the Ultima Dragons on Facebook and on Google+. You can follow at Ultima Dragons on Twitter or join them on Slack or Discord. And if you're feeling really old school, you can even fire up a Telnet client and check out the Wearmount. If you'd like to support Spam 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 Humbug, you can do so at Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to episodes the day before they go live for everyone else. You'll also get access to behind-the-scenes audio on occasion and possibly other interesting content. But if a monthly subscription isn't your thing, you can always buy your video games at GOG. We are a partner of that fine site, and every time you buy one or more games at GOG via the links on our websites or in the show notes, that helps us out. But we also welcome your moral support. You can like the Ultima series on Facebook, follow at Ultima Codex on Twitter, or leave the podcast a review on iTunes. And you're welcome to share our episodes with your friends and social media circles. Spam 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 Humbug is a production of the Ultima Codex. You can find show notes online at spamspamspamhumbug.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be virtuous. Be virtuous.